This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. So, is it possible that two little words could change how you look at the world, could ripple out and affect not only yourself, but everyone around you? Two words that we may say without much thought or thoughtlessly forget to say at all. Thank you. Oh, yeah. This is AJ Jacobs. Yeah, to practice gratitude, you really have to slow things down and notice. AJ's a writer, professional lifestyle experimenter, and self-described curmudgeon. I talk about, I think, in every, everyone has the two sides, the Larry David side and the Mr. Rogers side. So the, the grumpy pessimist and the optimistic, uh, grateful side. So many people have helped me to come to this night. And I believe I was born with a very strong Larry David side. I was very good at finding things to be annoyed about. And I think a lot of us are. If you hear a hundred compliments and a single insult, what do you remember? The insult. Would you just take, along with me, ten seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are? I was uh, aware that I had this negative bias, this Larry David side, but I wanted to bulk up the Mr. Rogers side. Ten seconds of silence. I'll watch the time. It's not something that comes naturally to me. And to most people, I don't think it comes naturally. You have to cultivate this idea of gratitude. Whomever you've been thinking about, how pleased they must be to know the difference you feel they've made. What what happened to you to say, you, you know, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not appreciating people, I'm not being grateful. Um, was there an epiphany? Like, what, what was it? Well, I think it was partly intellectually. I knew the power of gratitude. There are tons of studies about how good it is for you, how it helps ward off depression, you recover more quickly, you sleep better, eat better, you're more generous. So intellectually, I knew, like, I should be grateful. But uh, how do you do that? And that's when I decided, you know what, I'm going to try this ritual at home where uh, I'm going to try to say thanks to all the people who helped make my meal a possibility. So I would, I would before a meal, say, you know, I'd like to thank the farmer who grew the tomato and the cashier who rang the tomatoes up at the grocery store. And that's when my son, who is 10, very perceptively said, you know, Dad, that's fine, but it's also totally lame because those people can't hear you. They're not in our apartment. So if you really are committed, then you should go and thank those people in person. A.J. Jacobs picks up the story from the TED stage. Now, I'm a writer, and for my books, I like to go on adventures, go on quests. So I decided I'm going to take my son up on his challenge. It seemed simple enough, and to make it even simpler, I decided to focus on just one item, an item I can't live without, my morning cup of coffee. Well, it turned out to be not so simple at all. This quest took me months. It took me around the world, because I discovered that my coffee would not be possible without hundreds of people I take for granted. So I would thank the trucker who drove the coffee beans to the coffee shop, but he couldn't have done his job without the road. So I would thank the people who paved the road. And then I would thank the people who made the asphalt for the pavement. And 
he couldn't do his job without the folks who drew the yellow lines on the road because they kept my truck driver from smashing into oncoming traffic. This and is like splitting an atom, right? Because you can thank the people who mixed the paint for the lines on the road and then the people who made the machines to enable the paints to be mixed and then the people who mined the iron to make the machines to mix the paint and then on and on, right? Like you can, there's lots of people to thank. Oh, it's never infinite. I could have spent the next 50 years of my life thanking people and I could have given a TED talk that was about 400 hours long because yeah, That's what it made me realize, is how interconnected everything is, how many people it takes. It doesn't just take a village to make a cup of coffee, it takes the world. And uh, it was really a lesson in how interconnected we are, and sort of timely, too, because this trend towards tribalism is, uh, I find, quite disturbing. And this was a reminder of how we all depend on each other. Sometimes a simple act of kindness toward another person, a thank you, a compliment, a vote of confidence, can have a much bigger effect than we realize and can even change the way we look at ourselves. So today on the show, we're going to explore those ideas about what can happen when we stop and recognize the power of showing kindness, the worth of others, and why it all matters, even when it's not easy. And for A.J. Jacobs, that kind of appreciation turned into a journey of a thousand thank yous, all for just a cup of coffee. I I decided to go backwards. So I started with the barista at Joe Coffee, which is the coffee chain in New York where I go, and I thanked her and... uh, she thanked me for thanking her. What did you say to her? You said, hey, I just want to thank you for making my cup of coffee this morning. That's it. I just yeah, expressed my gratitude. And uh, I think she was pleasantly surprised because she doesn't get thanked all that often. So did you, like, draw out a timeline on a piece of paper and then put barista on one end and coffee on the other and then sort of reverse engineer every step of the way and then all the people that you would have to thank? Well, I had a huge list of people. And it wasn't like a line. It was more like a forest. So, for instance, you know, I thanked all the people who helped with my coffee. But what about the cup? So I wanted to thank the people who made the cup, and including the inventor of the modern zarf. That was one of my favorite words I learned. Z-A-R-F is the cardboard sleeve that goes around your coffee cup to keep your fingers from being uncomfortably hot. Hmm. You know, this guy has made people's lives just a a little tiny bit better. But we never thank him. We never acknowledge that. Hmm. All right. So you, uh, after thanking the barista and then the people who made your your cup, I guess you decided to meet with a guy named Ed Kaufman who who works for Joe Coffee? I, uh, so yeah, I met Ed Kaufman, who is the guy who goes around the world to South America, to Africa, testing the beans, tasting them. And uh, and I loved that because he was so passionate about this brown liquid. And I he taught me how to differentiate the tastes because he would take a, a sip and his face would light up and he would say, oh, I'm sensing honeycrisp apple and maple syrup and pineapple upside down cake. And I love that idea of, of savoring and uh, appreciating. It's so tied into gratitude. By the end of the project, I was just in a thanking frenzy. So I, was, I would get up and spend a couple hours. I'd write emails, send notes, make phone calls, visit people to thank them for their role in my coffee. And some of them, quite honestly, not that into it. They would be like, what, what is this? Is this a pyramid scheme? What's dry? What do you want? What are you selling? But most people were surprisingly moved. I remember I called the woman who does the pest control for the warehouse where my coffee is stored. And I said, this may sound strange, but I want to thank you for keeping the bugs out of my coffee. And she said, well, that does sound strange, but you just made my day. And every place 
every stop on this gratitude trail would give birth to a hundred other people that I could thank. So I went down to Colombia to thank the farmers who grow my coffee beans, and it was in a small mountain town. And I met the farmers, the Guarnizo brothers. It's a small farm.、Uh, they make great coffee. They're paid above fair trade prices for it. And they showed me how the coffee is grown. The bean is actually inside this fruit called the coffee cherry. And、uh, I thanked them. And they said, "Well, we couldn't do our job without a hundred other people. The machine that depulps the fruit is made in Brazil." And The pickup truck they drive around the farm, and that is made from parts from all over the world. I think in the end, they kind of got into the spirit of the project, and they did not、uh, kick me out, and、uh, they actually invited me back. So maybe I'll go and、uh, and enjoy their coffee again. So as you were like really immersing yourself in this thing, right? Because because part of this is. Um, it's like I'm just gonna try this thing out, but but part of you has to become that one. Like you had to become Mr. Gratitude. Like you had to believe in it, almost like it was a religion. Did you start to kind of feel differently on on that trip? Well, yeah. And one of the revelations that runs through many of my projects is just how powerful that is. How much our behavior shapes our thoughts. So I saw this. Like I would wake up in my Typical grumpy mood, and I would force myself to spend an hour writing thank you notes or calling people. And by the end of that hour, my mind had caught up. I had sort of tricked my mind and made it realize, oh my God, look at all these things that went right. And that ties into something that is one of my pet passions, which is that gratitude should not be the same as complacency, because some people are worried. That when you're grateful, like you think, oh, everything's wonderful, and、uh, we don't need to change a thing. But my argument, and it's backed up by some fascinating research, is that gratitude actually is the opposite of that. Gratitude makes you more aware and more open to trying to make things better. And I know this personally. When I'm in a bad mood, I'm not thinking about other people. I'm just thinking about myself. But when I'm grateful. That's when I realize all of the people who helped make this possible, and can I make their lives better? That's A.J. Jacobs. His latest book is called "Thanks a Thousand: A Gratitude Journey." You can see all of A.J.'s talks at TED.com. On the show today, approaching with kindness. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone! Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to WeWork. Michael Hirschfield is the head of WeWork's medium business segment. He's dedicated to helping growing companies find the space they need to succeed. It's not one size fits all. I mean, even medium-sized companies, they'll go from medium to large to enterprise, and so we want them to feel like there's room for them in any stage of their business. To learn more about WeWork's variety of workspace offerings, visit we.co/spacematters. Thanks also to Moo. You can be downright brilliant, but without the right presentation, it can all go wrong. So don't let it. Moo offers business printing with business cards, postcards, and more, all backed by 24-hour support from real print experts. Bring your ideas to life with thick papers and design finishes. And if you happen to make a mistake, Moo will reprint it for free. Use the code DreamBig for 15% off right now at Moo.com. Moo. You dream it, we print it. This is Peter Sagal. When we began, wait, wait, don't tell me. We dreamed that our rude jokes would be, in the end, the appropriate way to talk about the news. And look, it happened. Listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, approaching with kindness and how a little bit of appreciation can go a long way. 
A couple of weeks ago, I got a chance to speak with Mike Robbins. Hello, Mike. Hey, Guy. How are you? I'm doing well. You can probably call Mike an expert in appreciation, appreciating yourself, appreciating other people. He writes books about it, gives lectures, and runs seminars at major companies. But we probably spent the first 15 minutes of our conversation talking about baseball. I wouldn't say the best pitcher in the NL. Well, the Nationals have the same issue. Because before Mike was the appreciation guy, he was Mike the baseball player. For me, from the age of, you know, probably seven, I knew I wanted to play in the major leagues. There was really nothing else I wanted to do. When I started playing Little League back in those days, you played 9 through 12. And I would say by about the age of 10, I was probably the best player on the team. By the time Mike got to high school, he was a really good pitcher on a really good team. And people started paying attention. Every time I pitched my sophomore year in high school, there were probably anywhere between 25 and 40 scouts at the game. The New York Yankees recruited Mike before he left high school, but he was already committed to play at Stanford. My junior year, I was one of the starters at Stanford and ended up starting our first game of the College World Series in Omaha, Nebraska, which was pretty cool. And that's when I got drafted by the Kansas City Royals that year. And so my college career was you know, quite successful and ultimately led me to the opportunity to play professional baseball, which is what I wanted to do. Mike played in the minor leagues for three seasons. And then, in 1997, pitching against the Durham Bulls, Mike tore ligaments in his left arm, his throwing arm. And in that moment, his entire baseball career was over. It was devastating. I mean, it was disorienting. I was 23 when I got hurt. And then I was left in this place of, well, what do I do now? And where am I going to focus my energy and attention and, and, and my ego and my identity? I mean, you know, I was Mike the baseball player from the time I was literally seven years old. Yeah. But I finally, I was able to acknowledge when it was all over, you know what? I was pretty good at that. I wasted so much time and energy thinking I wasn't good enough or comparing myself to all the guys around me or being scared that I wasn't going to make it. And the biggest regret that I had when the whole thing was over was I wish I would have enjoyed that more. I wish I would have appreciated that more. And this is when Mike the baseball player started to become Mike the appreciation guy. There aren't a ton of people that have the same experience that I've had in terms of playing pro baseball and injuring their pitching arm. However, the experience of not appreciating what I have or what we have while we have it seems universal. So I started to realize, I think this is a message that's important for me to remember, but I want to try to remind other people to not miss the important aspects and moments and experiences of their lives. And as I started to tell my story about baseball, it really resonated with people in a more universal way. And that became Mike's new career, a mission to get people to appreciate their lives and appreciate the people around them. Mike Robbins picks up the story from the TED stage. I started to study things like positive psychology. This was the late 90s, and it was starting to get big, and I was studying emotional intelligence and group dynamics, and what I was finding was fascinating me, so much so that I actually ended up writing a book which is all about appreciation. But there's a simple distinction that I've learned over the years of doing this work and working with a lot of different types of people, both as it relates to business, but also in our lives personally. We've got to understand the distinction between recognition and appreciation. Recognition, here's what recognition is. It's positive feedback based on results or performance. And it's motivating, it feels good, right? When you work hard, you do something well, someone recognizes it, it feels good. However, recognition is finite, it's scarce, it's only based on our performance, and usually in an organizational structure or in others, it's gotta come from the top down for it to really have weight and merit. Therefore, it has a lot of limits. Appreciation, on the other hand, much more expansive. It's more about people less about what they do, more about who they are. The, the best way I know to describe this distinction is an example from my baseball career. I was a pitcher. Do you know what happens to the pitcher in the baseball game when the pitcher doesn't do well? You know what happens? Yeah, they stop the game, right? And in front of everybody, the manager walks out to the mound and literally takes the ball out of your hand and makes you leave. So your manager comes up to the mound, you hand him the ball, mm-hmm. you sort of walk off the mound, back to the dugout, Yep. You sit down on the bench, yep. and your teammates kind of do what? Mostly everyone sort of runs away from you. It's like they don't want to catch the you know bad thing you've got or whatever. I mean, it's <laughs> sort of the, the more sociologically, the environment is so focused on performance and results um, that if you do well, there's a lot of high fives and way to goes and attaboys and all that. But when I would fail like that, they would just kind of walk away from me and leave me alone, which I always found to be a really, really awful and painful part of the experience. Because as I would sit there by myself with no one talking to me, 
the little voice in my head would just be telling me you're terrible and everybody hates you and you blew it and you know when you look back at that moment now what do you what do you think would have been helpful so what i would have loved is one of my teammates or my coaches to come up and ask me hey mike is there anything that you need right now or anything i could do to support you if someone had asked me that question i would have said yeah actually there is could you sit down right next to me and could we talk for a little bit maybe and probably about anything except for what just happened on the mound on the field some way of reminding me that I'm more than just the failure that just happened. Sometimes we don't know what to say to someone when they fail or they're dealing with something challenging, so we don't say anything because we think that's more respectful or we don't want to upset them more when in fact I think sometimes that does more harm than good. You just wanted to be appreciated for 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 that moment. Absolutely. I wanted to be appreciated, but at the same time, and I failed for the team, if I gave up a bunch of runs early in the game, we might not be able to come back. So there's got to be some accountability. I also understood that. But what I needed in those moments and almost never got was some reassurance that like, we still value you. We still care about you. We still appreciate you, even though you just failed. You know, I spoke at a conference in Silicon Valley, a leadership conference about a year and a half ago. And the speaker before me was a professor from UC Berkeley. And he was sharing some interesting research that they'd been doing at Haas Business School, which is at Berkeley. And one of the studies he put up on his slide talked about what motivates productivity. And what they found in the study was that when people felt recognized for the work they did, they were 23% more effective and productive than when people didn't. Made sense. But the same study found that when people felt valued and cared for, a literal or figurative pat on the back, that the people around them, particularly the person they report to, really cared about them, they were 43% more effective and productive than people who didn't. There was a 20% increase in productivity from focusing on who people are, not just what they do. That's the distinction. But remember, appreciate doesn't mean like, doesn't mean agree with, doesn't mean, hey, let's be best friends and let's go hang out. It means recognize the value of. You can recognize the value of any human being at any time for any reason. So Mike, I'm, I'm trying to imagine someone listening to this r- right now, and they might think, you know, this is a, this is a little hokey, right? Like, like new agey or something, you know. Um, but I mean, but you're arguing there's real, practical, real world implications here. Absolutely, absolutely. When I talk to teams, I'll often say, "Okay, I'm, I'm talking to a group of people who are engineers or people who are, you know, very, very high level, very specific." And I'll come in and, "Okay, we're going to talk about teamwork and collaboration." And, and and I get some people start rolling their eyes. And one of the questions I'll often ask is, "Okay." Think about the best team you've ever been a part of. And people raise their hands and they say things like, we trusted each other, we had each other's backs, we believed in the mission. It's all these things that are kind of squishy and soft when they start to realize, oh yeah, those are the things, the key ingredients that often make a great team great. How many of you notice from time to time when someone gives you a compliment, you get a little funny about it? You ever notice that? Okay, you know what you're supposed to say when someone compliments you? Thank you. Then, shut your mouth. Literally, you don't have to say anything else after the thank you. Usually, if you listen to yourself and other people, whatever you say after the thank you is almost always weird and insincere. It is. It's a compliment. Sometimes we give a compliment right back to the person. And sometimes we mean it, but sometimes it's like completely inappropriate. It would be like if you came up to me after this one and said, hey, Mike, that was a great talk. And I went, you too. (laughs) That's weird. But even worse, we argue with people. You ever do that? Someone gives you a compliment, you go, oh, no, no. It's bad. It was terrible. We start cutting ourselves down. That's literally like someone handing you a birthday gift and saying happy birthday. And you're going, ah. What's wrong with you? I don't deserve this. And throwing it on the floor. You ruin the gift, you offend the giver, and you don't get very many more gifts that way. Do you know they've scientifically proven now that when one human being expresses kindness and appreciation to another human being, and it's received, raises the serotonin level in both people's brains. It physiologically makes us feel better. To me, like, this is a really actionable hack. It's, it's like so simple. It's so simple and it's in there. We know how to do it. We just have to remember and tap into it on a daily basis and with the people we interact with and the people we work with and live with and the people on the bus or at the train station or at the coffee shop or wherever we are. And remember, we know how to do it. People know how to receive it. And it is really simple, but it can be profound. That's Mike Robbins. He's a public speaker, author, and former baseball player. You can see his full talk at ted.npr.org. Today on the show, approaching with kindness. And most of us think of kindness and appreciation as things we give. But sometimes 
there's value in asking for them, too. Laura Trice is a doctor and a therapist, and she spoke about this idea from the TED stage. I'm here to talk to you about the importance of praise, admiration, and thank you, and having it be specific and genuine. And the way I got interested in this was I noticed in myself when I was growing up that I would want to say thank you to someone. I would want to praise them. I'd want to take in their praise of me, and I'd just stop it. And I asked myself, why? I, I felt shy, felt embarrassed. And then my question became, am I the only one who does this? So I decided to investigate. I'm fortunate enough to work in the rehab facility, so I get to see people who are facing life and death with addiction. And sometimes it comes down to something as simple as their core wound is their father died without ever saying he was proud of them. But then they hear from all the family and friends that the father told everybody else that he was proud of him, but he never told the son. It's because he didn't know that his son needed to hear it. So my question is, why don't we ask for the things that we need? I know a gentleman married for 25 years who's longing to hear his wife say, thank you for being the breadwinner so I could stay home with the kids, but won't ask. I know a woman who's good at this. She once a week meets with her husband and says, I would like you to thank me for all these things I did in the house <laughs> and with the kids. And he goes and he goes, oh, this is great, this is great. And praise really does have to be genuine, but she takes responsibility for that. And a friend of mine, April, who I've had since kindergarten, she thanks her children for doing their chores. And she said, why wouldn't I thank it, even though they're supposed to do it? So the question is, why was I blocking it? Why were other people blocking it? Why can I say I'll take my steak medium rare, I need size six shoes, but I won't say, would you praise me this way? And it's because I'm giving you critical data about me. I'm telling you where I'm insecure. I'm telling you where I need your help. And I'm treating you, my inner circle, like you're the enemy. Because what can you do with that data? You could neglect me. You could abuse it, or you could actually meet my need. And I took my bike into the bike store. I love this um, same bike, and they do something called truing the wheels. I get the same bike back, and they've taken all the little warps out of those same wheels, and my bike is like new. So I'm going to challenge all of you. I want you to true your wheels. Be honest about the praise that you need to hear. What do you need to hear? Go home to your wife. Go ask her, what does she need? Go home to your husband, what does he need? Go home and ask those questions and then help the people around you. I think it starts household by household, under the same roof. So let's make it right in our own backyard. And I wanted to thank all of you in the audience for being great husbands, great mothers, friends, daughters, sons. And maybe somebody's never said that to you, but you've done a really, really good job. And thank you for being here and just showing up and changing the world with your ideas. Thank you. That's Dr. Laura Trice. To find out more about her, go to TED.com. Today on the show, approaching the world with gratitude and kindness. I think people desperately want to feel valued. And, you know, it makes a huge difference to most people. This is Christine Porath. She's a professor of management at Georgetown University. And Christine studies what happens when people don't feel appreciated at work something she first saw her own dad experience. Here's Christine Porath on the TED stage. Over 22 years ago, I vividly recall walking into this stuffy hospital room. It was heartbreaking to see my dad, this strong, athletic, energetic guy, lying in the bed with electrodes strapped to his bare chest. What put him there was work-related stress. For over a decade, he suffered an uncivil boss. And for me, I thought he was just an outlier at that time. But just a couple years later, I witnessed and experienced a lot of incivility in my first job out of college. I spent a year going to work every day and hearing things from coworkers like, are you an idiot? That's not how it's done. And if I wanted your opinion, I'd ask. I just felt like we could and should do better. Yeah. And I was surprised that, you know, management wasn't paying attention, but I was an economics major as an undergrad, and so I felt like, well, you need to show them the money, <laughs> you know, show them what it's costing organizations in order to really put it on managers' radar. So I did the natural thing. I quit. And I went back to grad school to study the effects of this. 
And there, I met Christine Pearson. And she had a theory that small, uncivil actions can lead to much bigger problems, like aggression and violence. We believed that incivility affected performance in the bottom line. So we launched a study, and what we found was eye-opening. We sent a survey to business school alumni working in all different organizations, and we asked them to write a few sentences about one experience where they were treated rudely, disrespectfully, or insensitively, and to answer questions about how they reacted. One person told us about a boss that made insulting statements like, that's kindergartner's work. And another tore up someone's work in front of the entire team. And what we found is that incivility made people less motivated. 66% cut back work efforts. 80% lost time worrying about what happened. And 12% left their job. And after we published these results, two things happened. One, we got calls from organizations. Cisco read about these numbers, took just a few of these, and estimated conservatively incivility was costing them $12 million a year. The second thing that happened was that we heard from others in our academic field who said, well, people are reporting this, but how can you really show it? Does people's performance really suffer? And what we found is that those that experience incivility do actually function much worse. You know, I, I have always been motivated when I feel valued and appreciated, right, for what I do. And I've left jobs in the past when I didn't feel that way. And I, I mean, I can't imagine that's unique, right? I mean, why would somebody be motivated to do their best work if they didn't feel appreciated? I don't think that's unique at all. In fact, I did a study uh, with Tony Schwartz and the Harvard Business Review, and I was really curious what leader behaviors were most important to people and had the biggest effect on the outcomes that were measured. And the number one thing that affected people and that people seemed to want most was respect or the sense of feeling valued. And that was actually more important than recognition and appreciation, than useful feedback, even than opportunities for learning and growth. And, you know, those people that felt respected, and sadly it was less than half, they reported being uh, far more focused. You know, they were uh, 92% more focused. They said that they were 56% healthier. They were much more likely to stay with their firm. And they were about 55% more engaged. And so, you know, I was even surprised, even though I buy into this topic, at just across the different leader behaviors that we know are important, that was the one that won out. When we come back in just a moment, Christine Porath explains how we can make the world around us just a little more respectful. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, ideas about appreciation. You're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible, Lexus. The Lexus UX was crafted to explore the modern frontier. Independent designer Wayne Hunt spends his days designing signs to help drivers navigate busy city streets. The passive world gives us all kinds of cues about where to go, where it's safe, where it's light, where you think you're going. But when a city doesn't do that, we humans have to add active tools. And the active tools are things like street name signs in advance of the intersection, where you get a sign that says Baldwin Boulevard, but it says it 200 feet before the turn. That is a terrific asset, because if you wait till you can read the tiny sign, it may be too late for the lane change. The smart cities are finding ways to do advanced notice of major intersections. It gives the visitor confidence in the place, and then they can go on to solve other problems. Informed by the evolution of traffic in the modern city, the new Lexus UX comes with a built-in camera that recognizes signs to help drivers explore with confidence. Visit Lexus.com UX for more. In the Trump era, the news moves faster than ever, and the NPR Politics Podcast is here to keep you informed. Every time there's a major political story, we get our best correspondents together to sort through the noise. The NPR Politics Podcast, what you need to know right when it happens. 
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, approaching the world with kindness. And we were just hearing from Christine Porath about the consequences and the real-world costs of not being civil to your coworkers. So if incivility has such a huge cost, why do we still see so much of it? I was curious, so we surveyed people about this too. The number one reason is stress. People feel overwhelmed. The other reason that people are not more civil is because they're skeptical and even concerned about being civil or appearing nice. They believe they'll appear less leader-like. They wonder, do nice guys finish last? Or in other words, do jerks get ahead? It's easy to think so, especially when we see a few prominent examples that dominate the conversation. Well, it turns out in the long run, they don't. There's really rich research on this by Morgan McCall and Michael Lombardo when they were at the Center for Creative Leadership. And they found the number one reason tied to executive failure was an insensitive, abrasive, or bullying style. There will always be some outliers that succeed despite their incivility. Sooner or later, though, most uncivil people sabotage their success. For example, with uncivil executives, it comes back to hurt them when they're in a place of weakness or they need something. People won't have their backs. But what about nice guys? Does civility pay? Yes, it does. And being civil doesn't just mean that you're not a jerk. Not holding someone down isn't the same as lifting them up. Being truly civil means doing the small things like smiling and saying hello in the hallway, listening fully when someone's speaking to you. Now, you can have strong opinions, disagree, have conflict, or give negative feedback civilly, with respect. Some people call it radical candor, where you care personally, but you challenge directly. So yes, civility pays. Why does civility pay? Because people see you as an important and a powerful, unique combination of two key characteristics, warm and competent, friendly and smart. In other words, being civil isn't just about motivating others, it's about you. If you're civil, you're more likely to be seen as a leader. You'll perform better, and you're seen as warm and competent. So in order for a workplace to to be the kind of place where people feel appreciated and valued, does it have to be a leader who who makes that happen? I think it helps a lot. You know, I think that uh, you need leaders to be role models, and that matters. And people become cynical if, for example, you know, you have values of respect or valuing people or treating people well, and they're not doing it. So, however, I do think it's possible to build from the middle or from the ground up. You know, I think what you want to do is kind of own and take responsibility for what's the culture we want to create. Okay, well, then let's high five each other. You know, let's find ways to celebrate each other on our own. Let's write each other thank you notes or circulate emails for a project well done or whatever the case may be. Find ways to do this with your team or your department. And what we found in our research is people not only reciprocate, but they actually pass it forward in their social networks at work and beyond. I mean, what you're talking about is free. It's like a free, it costs nothing. Like it doesn't, you don't, don't have to bring in consultants, you don't have to spend money. It's so weird that it wouldn't just be the norm. It is. Uh, I think the good news on that front is if you can get a cycle going, you know, it really can bring a lot of benefits. Uh, And again, like you said, without a lot of resources. So I try to emphasize that um, whenever I'm talking with leaders, organizations that, you know, this is not something that they're spending millions on a gym or, you know, certain employee benefits. This is something that, yes, we need to be more mindful and practice this on a daily basis, but it is doable, you know. And you will get so many wins across the board. That's Christine Porath. She's a professor of management at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, 
ideas about kindness. And so far, we've heard stories of gratitude and appreciation for loved ones or colleagues or people who have helped you even in small ways. But it's a lot harder to respect or acknowledge or be kind to people who actively hate you. I can remember when I was young and I wear scarf. Uh, I can remember one day when I walk on the street and young man, he spit on me. And I can remember an old man try to take my scarf off on the street. So I have a lot of times um, meet the racism. I still do. This is Oslem Cekic. She was born in Turkey, but her parents emigrated when she was a kid. And her family settled in Denmark in the 1980s. And my parents don't want me to wear a scarf. And, you know, when you are a teenager, you want to do the opposite of what your parents want you to do. So I wear a scarf. And it was the best time in my life because they were so angry. <laughs> and uh, These days, Oslam no longer wears a headscarf. But as an adult, she's had to deal with an entirely new level of harassment. Because in 2007, Muslim actually became the first woman with a Muslim immigrant background to be elected to the Danish parliament. Everyone could see that I looked different. My name was not Danish. I can remember the first time I get hate mails in the parliament was on my first speech. I came back to my seat and opened my computer and I could say I have two emails. The first one started with, what a terrorist like you doing in our parliament. Here's more from Oslem Cekic on the TED stage. Sometimes hateful letters were also sent to my home address. After a while, I got a secret address and I had to take extra precautions to protect my family. Then in 2010, a Nazi began to arrest me. It was a man who had attacked Muslim women on the street. I was at the zoo with my children, and the phone was ringing constantly. It was the Nazi. I had the impression that he was close. We headed home. When we got back, my son asked, why does he hate you so much, Mom, when he doesn't even know you? Some people are just stupid, I said. And at the time, I actually thought that was a pretty clever answer. And I suspect that that is the answer most of us would give. Several weeks later, I was at a friend's house, and I was very upset and angry about all the hate and racism I had met. It was he who suggested that I should call them up and visit them. They will kill me, I said. They would never attack the member of the Danish parliament, he said. And anyway... If they killed you, you'd become a martyr. <laughs> so it's pure win-win situation for you. <laughs> His advice was so unexpected. When I got home, I turned on my computer and opened the folder where I have saved all the hate mails. There were literally hundreds of them. Emails that started with words like terrorist, rackhead, rat, whore, I decided to contact the one who had sent me the most. His name was Ingolf. To my surprise and shock, he answered the phone. I blurted out. Hello, my name is Özlem. You have sent me so many hate mails. You don't know me. I don't know you. I was wondering if I could come around and we can drink a coffee together and talk about it. <laughs> I was so nervous. I was so nervous about what he will say. And the first thing he said was, I have to ask my wife. And I think, wow, so he's like, he's like my father. He always wants to ask my mom before he decides something, <laughs> you know. So it was the first time that Ingolf got normal for me. Hmm. So, so when you went to, to visit him, to visit Ingolf, what, what happened? I went to uh, Ingolf's house, and when he tried to shake my hand, I can remember I was I felt so disappointed because I imagined that he had um, uh, dirty ne necks, uh, knives, 
What do you call it? Uh, nails, fingernails. Nail that he will have a dirty nails, and his house will be very dirty. And uh, it was not. I didn't expect that. I couldn't imagine that he will talk with me. He talked with me. He talked me about his childhood. I told about my childhood, and we laughed together and we discussed things and. It was the first time I could see. Okay, why, why uh, did I have all these pictures in my own head about Ingolf and his house and his wife? And so that uh, was the first lessons to me to understand that I have to work with myself too. Hmm. I- I'm curious because after you you met um, with Ingolf. I guess you decided that you wanted this is something you wanted to do, that you wanted to have coffee with people who said horrible things to you. But I, I have to imagine that that some of those conversations have not been pleasant, right? Like they haven't gone as well as that first coffee with Ingolf. You know, the conversation is not easy. Hmm. I pay for my own train uh, ticket and uh, I take one day f- out from my work to do this. And sometimes I visit a man and he was so kindly, you know, he asked me and said, you know, uh, I want to know, did you eat something? I want to make a sandwich if if you are hungry. And we talk about a lot of things we have in common. Our children and my big uh, son is finished with high school and his daughter was starting in high school. And we talk about tax system and health system, but you know, he said to me that you will never be Danish because you believe in ideology Islam and uh, Islam and Muslims people are like uh, bacteria. He said they're like bacteria. Yeah, so um, I don't think that a lot of people can tolerate so much hate. Uh, it is It is difficult. The vast majority of people I approach agree to meet me. Most of them are men, but I also met women. I have made it a rule to always meet them in their house, to convey from the outset that I trust them. I always bring food, because when we eat together, it is easier to find what we have in common and make peace together. Along the way, I have learned some valuable lessons. The people who send hate mails are workers, husbands, wives, parents like you and me. I'm not saying that their behavior is acceptable, but I have learned to distance myself from the hateful views without distancing myself from the person who's expressing those views. During these meetings, a specific theme keeps coming up. They all seem to think that Other people are to blame for the hate and for the generalization of groups. They all believe that other people have to stop demonizing. They point at politicians, the media, their neighbor, or the bus driver who stops 10 meters away. But when I ask, what about you? What can you do? The reply is usually, I have no influence. I have no power. I know that feeling. For a large part of my life, I also thought that I don't have any power and influence. But today, I know the reality is different. We all have power and influence where we are, so we must never underestimate our own potential. Trenches have been dug between people, yes, but we all have the ability to build the bridges that cross the trenches. And let me end by quoting my friend, Serja Tuzan, who lost his son, Ben Uzan, in a terror attack. Serja rejected any suggestion of revenge and instead said this, evil can only be defeated by kindness between people. Kindness demands courage. Muslim, um, I keep going back to this idea in my mind that um, a big part of me, like, I, I wouldn't want to be kind to them. Like, I, I would I would be angry. I would want an apology from them. And I, I'm just wondering, 
why you do it. I mean, do you do you think it actually changes people's minds? I think it's changed the people's minds. A lot, a lot of those people, when I show them respect, they always respect back. Hmm. You know, when I'm kindly, they are always kindly back. And I do it because I really, really love democracy. I think it's a very big problem that we talk so bad about the others. I love peace. You know, peace, we take peace for granted. Hmm. But if you want peace, you have to do something for peace. Peace is not something natural. It's because of that everyone trying to tolerate each other. They try to give place to different mindset. You can live in a democracy, take it granted, just sitting and think, okay, I don't have to do anything. You have to take responsibility for the conversation. And conversation is difficult, but it is the most necessary thing in a democracy. That's Oslem Cekic. As of 2015, she's no longer a member of the Danish parliament, but her project of meeting and talking with people, she calls it hashtag dialogue coffee, that continues. You can see Oslem's entire talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Approaching with Kindness, this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deepa Motasham, James Delahousey, and J.C. Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin and Dareth Gales. Our intern is Katie Monteleone. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Thank you.